Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. Uh, welcome, everybody. This is the uh, third episode of On Your Wavelength. I'm Cristiano and I'm tuning from Berlin today and I join with my colleague. Hi, I'm Ankita from Nature Reviews Physics, joining you from London today. Hi, Chris. So I hear that you've been at a super interesting workshop recently. Yeah, I've been in Vilnius in an open readings um, conference. It was a student conference. It was organized by students, but really great uh, um, environments, multidisciplinary with a lot of uh, invited talks and um, uh, industries, poster sessions, and I participated as an, as an editor, so I gave a little bit of introduction on the uh, editorial process, publishing sector in, in general, and I participated to a really interesting uh, panel discussion on artificial intelligence and, um, and publishing, scientific publishing. Yeah. That's definitely yeah. a very hot topic right now. I feel like AI's just like kicked off since last autumn with ChatGPT, and I think it's suddenly become so much more relevant for us to have these conversations. I think just is the second episode we did, we do, and we talk about ChatGPT. <laughs> so just is like, <laughs> yeah, and it was it was really interesting because I was in a panel with uh, one um, uh, guy who actually do research on the field on large language models and a PhD in mathematics is we all agree that both from the publishing perspective and from the research production uh, this tools will actually be implemented sooner than we expect and at the same time we agreed that there are many problems related with this uh, implementations ethical problems integrity problems for example i will give you diversity problems uh, I will give you an example. Uh, um, last, um, just a few days ago, I was looking for reviewers and I prompt ChatGPT to look for female reviewers. I'm really well involved in having a really diverse um, pool of reviewers. And I asked explicitly to list me uh, experts, female experts in a specific field, in a field X. And surprisingly, Half or more than half of the uh, of the list of the, of the persons suggested were not female. So just ChatGPT cannot really recognize whether a person is a female or a male if there's no data outside on on their gender. So this could be a really big problem when it comes to diversity and inclusion. This is one of the one of the problem. Uh, and they all, they were also asking me whether uh, at some point the intelligence, artificial intelligence, can replace us as editor to do the due diligence and decide whether to send out to peer review or not the paper. Yeah. Also, like it's interesting that you bring up the like the idea if it's summarizing a paper. So. At Nature Reviews Physics, we just published a Viewpoint article about just doing science in the age of large language models more broadly. And one of the important things that comes up is that, of course, you can ask um, an LLM to summarize um, a scientific paper or a set of scientific papers, but it can't make the value judgments that a human can make about the novelty or the 
innovativeness of a new method, right? And I think that is a very key part of when we read papers and assess them as editors, but also as readers, to like really understand which papers are maybe going in a different direction or you know taking a really new angle on something. Um, so that's I think something that um, model like the one we have will would just struggle with a lot. You also imprint in your decision your editorial line that you built throughout the years, going to conferences, speaking to uh, reviewers, l reading review reports, and, and actually adjusting the bar of your uh, of, uh, according on the topic. So just it's not like a black and white decision based on whether this paper has more uh, performance rather uh, compared to another another paper. To do this kind of stuff, we need another higher level of complexity in the machine learning model, a, a complexity that brings the machine learning to make hypotheses because our work, our decision, it's also based on making um, hypotheses. <laughs> I think I think we're a long way away from that. I think the thing to remember is that, you know, they're not conscious and they're not making value judgments. And actually we wrote an editorial on this as well, that it's so easy to basically anthropomorphize these AI tools. And we need to remember that they're basically just sophisticated calculators. Um, so for example, if you ask the tool to provide you with a summary of a paper, it might seem convincing and then you can ask it for references and it might give you a set of references that seem convincing, but you'll look them up and often they're just fake references they've made up because obviously the tool doesn't understand what it means to reference um, or cite a work, right? Like it just is adding words to words it's heard before. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot to be wary about before jumping too deeply into using large language models for like doing science or for publication as well. Yeah, and I will leave this kind of conversation because we need to start the actual interview. <laughs> yeah, there's a you. lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah, today's paper, it's a paper I had the... Uh, um, uh, the pleasure to interview the authors and the uh, and the editor on uh, Nature Photonics is a paper published in Nature Photonics a few weeks ago, and it has to do with shrimps, he has to do with biophotonics, and he has to do with the new physics that allow a really brilliant whiteness. So, if you're curious to learn to learn about this paper, after the jingle, we have the story at the, at the interview. So, see you in the other room. So the paper of today, as I said, has to do with shrimps and a new physical mechanism behind their incredible whiteness. Before diving into the science, let's listen at the behind the scene and the story of this paper from the voices of the authors, of two of the authors, Telly Lenkov and Benjamin Palmer. I think as with many scientific um, findings and papers, it takes some time. And I think the genesis of this story goes back um, at least four or five years, I think, to, to my postdoc days. And that was how it started. We found an old paper from 1971. I was looking in my postdoc by a, by a researcher called Elofsson. And this was about some pigment cells inside a shrimp. And that was the genesis of the idea. And I thought, oh, that could be a nice sample to look at. And then I sort of put it on the shelf. <laughs> and uh, as you do, a lot of times you have these ideas and then they sort of stay on the shelf for many years until one day 
something aligns in the stars and they come off the shelf and they come into reality. So I think that's what happened here. And so if I fast forward sort of four or five years on from that initial idea, um, then Tally joined the group and um, she was interested in this question. And we had actually been searching for a, um, a particular species of shrimp that had these white cells. And it turns out that that was not the right model to work on. Um, uh, and Tally came along and she said, hey, how about we look at this Ismata type of shrimp, right? And actually, that was a much better system to look at. And it was that idea that kind of transformed this from a theoretical notion I had in my head into reality. I guess always when working with a biological sample, uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, specifically in this uh, in this uh, paper, um, uh, doing the cryosome imaging on the tissue was pretty difficult because we needed to uh, first fix the tissue and make sure that all of the the all the everything inside of the tissue, particularly the crystals or the particles that we were trying to look at, um, had their uh, kind of integrity uh, kept. Another uh, problem we had was trying to get a reflectance measurement of the shrimp. We, we tried to get a diffuse reflection measurement using a, an integrating sphere, but uh, there's a person at the university here, a technician, that uh, he has an integrating sphere and a microscope. I told him what I wanted to do and he was very uh, surprised to hear I wanted to put a shrimp in his integrating sphere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's funny actually to get. I mean, it's 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 perfect to get Tally's um, perspective on this because when you're sitting in the in an office and not and not trying to do this practically, you know, you, you, you just sort of think, okay, you can just push through these problems. You can push through these problems. But Tally really showed the exemplary determination. Often, when you're collaborating with um, with genuine physicists, you know, their their, their idea of sample preparation and and uh, materials very different to the shrimps idea right <laughs> so you have we have to bridge this gap and this can be quite this can be quite a challenge and we were very lucky to work with some fantastic physics collaborators here who, who made this possible our field um when you're looking at biological materials um it's full of many obstacles but it's often a story about preconceptions that you you learn from we came into this um project with many preconceptions and the first thing was that we were determined to find crystals right? that was our thing I'm a, I'm a crystal chemist that's my background and we're interested in crystals in animals so we thought there must be crystals inside these cells we'll extract the crystals we'll determine the crystal structure we'll have a nice materials chemistry paper okay so when tally found that the particles in these cells the, the, these white cells are composed of dense arrays of particles and they were not crystalline um, that was a big disappointment i'm not sure whether it was an obstacle but it was a big disappointment and that's when we thought okay well we're not really sure how to go forward with this paper but um, by letting the animal tell us the answer, it turns out the answer was a lot more interesting than our initial preconception. I think that in, as a chemist, you, you're often making things, you're synthesizing things, but in this field, 
have to let the animals <laughs> tell you what's going on and that takes um, a certain degree of patience and humility and sort of extracting the information the preconceptions from your head letting nature do the talking through imaging and, and through all of our experimentation which is to observe and to describe other than to tell right so it's it's a it's a twist in in the thinking and which is sometimes hard to to to, to listen to curiously uh, an aside to this story is that this is a similar species to what's find uh, found on finding nemo this uh this uh cartoon film um where there's a shrimp called jack who is a cleaner shrimp and he has these striking white stripes on his back and on his antennae and actually that's that's actually a very similar species to what we ended up working on so so this is a paper about jack from finding nemo <laughs> but not his not necessarily his cleaning skills but his his strategies of attracting fish to his um uh, to his cleaning studio i guess you'd say Today's paper is a recent publication in Nature Photonics. Uh, its title is Brilliant Whiteness in Shrimps from Ultra-Thin Layer of Birefringent Nanospheres. So here I'm joined by Tali Lenkov, um, who followed and closely participated to the design of the project and the reduction of the paper. We also have Benjamin Palmer who is the principal investigator of this work and an assistant professor at the Department of Chemistry of Ben-Gurion University. His group focuses, among other aspects, on biological photonics and how organism and organic crystal can manipulate light and add functionalities, optical functionalities. So welcome, Tali. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, fine. Right. <laughs> Also, today we have Giampaolo Pietruzzello. He's um, an associate editor at Nature Photonics. He handled the paper from the submission to the acceptance and now following up with all of the post-publication processing that also editor does this. Giampaolo joined Nature Photonics in 2022 as an associate editor. He, he has a PhD in applied photonics and two plus years of postdoc experience always in photonics, sensing, and imaging. And he handled content in imaging, optical sensing, and optoelectronic device like LEDs or solar cells. And he does it to shape the content of nature photonics. So uh, it's a pleasure. Welcome, Giampaolo. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So let's take off with you, Ben. Can you tell us a little bit more on the research interest of your group and how do you get to study this structure in a shrimp? As you mentioned in your introduction, my group is interested in um, optical materials uh, that are made by animals, and we're particularly interested in crystals. Um, and one part of my research interests, which go back a long way and that is still present in the group, is a question which is trying to explore what types of crystals, what types of optical highly reflective crystals organisms make um, and and that's a big unknown question so half of my group is trying to explore what's out there to be discovered a few materials are known of different types of molecular crystals but we we have the impression um that there are many more out there to be discovered so back in my postdoc i was sort of searching for these things and one of the hallmarks one of the trademarks and features of these molecular crystals 
inside organisms is holes inside um, transmission electron micrographs. Okay, so when tissues are prepared, often by biologists um, who are maybe not looking at the optical materials and the materials chemistry, the preparation of these materials, um, the, the, the biological tissues, the crystalline materials are lost. We often, one way that we search this topic is to look back in the old literature and to see the void spaces that are there in these optical structures. So fantastic. Can you describe now a little bit more the physics? What, what's special about this incredible wideness? Why we have this incredible wideness, which is the physical mechanism behind? So um, the, the cells um, that make this whiteness are full of nanoparticles, nanospheres, which are made of an organic molecule called isoxanthoterin. Um, our initial assumption was that these molecules are arranged in a crystalline form um, such that we could see um, diffraction or electron diffraction. But actually we didn't. And our diffraction analysis showed us that these molecules are arranged in the form of a liquid crystal. Okay, so these are, uh, have a very strong preferred orientation of molecules inside the sphere. And they resemble a, something like the spokes of a wheel. Okay, so you have the particle, spherical particle, and the molecules are arranged radially like the spokes of a wheel in a, in a, in a very um, specific orientation. And it's this that results in the phenomena of birefringence. You have different refractive indices in different directions. Um, that's the first thing about the, um, the birefringence and its origin. What we were surprised by when we looked at these white cells is how densely packed the particles were. Okay, and, and that was what got us onto the optics because you could say what's interesting about white materials, okay? You can make white diffuse scatterers very easily with almost any material. The difficulty of making white materials is making them thin and packing the optical materials densely. Uh, and that's for two reasons. Often when you pack particles very densely, then they start to become more ordered. And when they become more ordered, you can get um narrow band scattering which can lead to color and the other thing is that actually often the efficiency of the scattering goes down when you increase the density of the material um or reaches a peak and then goes down okay above certain um filling fractions and that seems initially counterintuitive um, and that's due to um, a phenomena called optical crowding okay so when we saw the density of the packing we knew that we should explore it in more detail Ask the question, how does the organism obtain brilliant whiteness from an ultra-thin, ultra-dense cell? Okay, And that's when the calculations came in and told us the answer. The organism does two things. Uh, it tunes two parameters of the system. One is the polydispersity of these spheres. So they're almost the same size, but not quite. That enables you to pack these particles closely together without getting ordering without getting the emergence of color. The second and most important thing is that because of the birefringence of these particles, you can pack them together, get almost no reduction in the scattering efficiency because the birefringence, we think this is something to do with the scrambling of the polarization, mitigates against the effects of near field coupling. So those, that's the key to the, to the physics that this organism somehow, we have no idea how, manipulates those two parameters.
So here comes with another questions, a little bit more uh, on the uh, conceptual sides. Uh, so when did you realize uh, that the optics here could have been a breakthrough and so just trying to publish it in Nature yeah. Photonics? But, well, actually, this came, the, the optics part came, came second. And actually, that was interesting because um, the decision to submit to Nature Photonics came during writing the paper. Okay, we didn't decide where to submit until... So we were sort of writing the paper and initially this was more more focused on 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 the uh on the chemistry the materials um the imaging and then we realized at a certain point in the story that um there were some really really interesting optics here and that's when we reached out to um two um uh, collaborators that turned out to be critical to this story um, who were both postdocs in Cambridge University at the time, um, Lucas Schertel and Johannes Hataja, and they really um, uh, transformed our understanding of the optics. And once we had established that, then we, I mean, it was natural for us to go to nature photonics. Um, so it was kind of came at the end, but it was a nice story. It kind of all clicked. And once we started writing the paper, it kind of clicked quite, quite quickly. Um, that there was something very special going on with the optics that took this from, um, let's say, a simple um, materials story to a much more interesting optic story. Fantastic. And how about the peer review process? I suppose that this was the first one for you, Tal, isn't it? Uh, and Ben, uh, for you, that you're a little bit more experienced with the peer review, which was the other part uh, to solve? most important challenge to address at the beginning of the peer review process uh after the first uh, peer review round uh, came in uh obviously we were uh, very uh, nervous uh waiting for it um but the initial reviews were actually pretty positive uh from the start and it made us uh, pretty confident um and i think uh actually the 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 reviewers' suggestions uh, made our paper uh, uh, better and in, in... maybe I can just say something on that. I think that whenever you submit a paper as an author, you always know <laughs> the strengths and weaknesses, right? I mean, this is just a fact with every single story, and I think that it's a sign of of a good journal when when referees pinpoint those weaknesses, and you you want them to actually, and I think that that was indeed the case here that one of the reviewers really nailed the question which is well what's the mechanism of this optical effect that you see resulting from birefringence and you know the question is valid and by answering it that's another leap in your understanding so i think that that gives me confidence in general in the peer review process and also i do see correlation with quality of of reviewing and 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 also the impact factor of the journals i mean uh, this is a this is an issue at the moment that people are discussing but personally i see a very strong correlation between how difficult it is to get into a journal and the review process the rigor of the review process and the product at the end i mean for me this is very very clear correlation so i enjoy that experience a lot um being challenged um to answer those difficult questions which are you know ultimately what peer review is all about right so so today's take message is that despite the physics behind biooptics and photonics um it's very well known since i would say hundreds of years 
uh, there's still a lot to discover. And today's example is a really great example of this statement. And uh, it tells us how uh, the B refrangents, the molecular orientation, differences in the refractive indices and orientation in the materials can profoundly affect the scattering. All of these properties have, are, I would say, nothing new separately, but the uh, together, all together, the engineering of all of these properties can open new way of thinking on how to structure uh, optical materials. And all of, all of this coming from an humble and a simple shrimp. So thanks, Ben. Thanks, Dali. And now it's time to shift to Giampaolo, who handled the paper from the first editorial assessment to the publication. So first of all, Giampaolo, my question is, how did you feel when this paper landed on your desk? And do you receive a lot of papers on bio-inspired um, materials, let's say optical materials? Um, I, I must say that we don't receive that many <clears throat> on this specific topic, at least compared to the rest of what we receive. If you compare to, say, integrated photonics or nanophotonics, septoelectronic devices, um, I would say we receive many more of those compared to this area. Um, and I think it's something, the reason is something that Ben touched on, which is uh, it's a very interdisciplinary area, right? So um, not many researchers would think of nature photonics for, 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 this, for, for, this, um, for research in this area, unless it really enables a new understanding of optics and photonics, as in this case. Um, so I should say that, yes, we don't receive uh, many. Um, and some of those that we receive is as um, as Ben uh, said, they they, they rely um, on century-old optics and photonics. So sometimes we're not really keen on those. But when there is a new insight in this from that we can gain from these bio-inspired structures, then that's when we become interested in this in these sort of papers. Yes, it's kind of you replied also why uh, your first reaction. So just you felt like just oh yeah, there's new physics here. Yes, yes, I, I yes, I was pretty intrigued because, as I said, when the ones we receive are usually rely on diffractive optics, multilayer structures, photonic crystal-like structures, uh, structural colors, which are all areas that you know we've known for quite a while. But but with this one, I was already immediately intrigued. First of all, because um, I don't think that this cleaner shrimp has been studied a lot before, um, and so so that was already a new system compared to. There are a lot of butterflies or a lot of beetles that have been been studied. So that was that already caught the, the attention, um, and also because it, as I said, it it, it started going into really the optics mechanism or, or the new optics that really enables such, such brilliant whiteness, um, and that's just like okay, this this is interesting. I think we we should you know send it out, get some expert opinion uh, on this. Uh, because there is really the potential for some new optics in, in, in this system. And that's what really caught my attention. And that's what made me, you know, send it out to, to peer review in the first place. Um, and, and I think it's, it's also interesting because, as, as I said, it, it sits in this sort of interdisciplinary area where we can actually learn from from biology, from nature, right? This problem of optical crowding uh, that the shrimp seems to be solving very efficiently, it really shows how you know nature can still teach us things and teach us new optics that that you know we we we, we didn't know um, the solution to until now. So so that's what what I really found intriguing about the paper. Yeah. 
Thanks for sharing with us your vision on this paper and a little bit of insights on what nature photonics would look for uh, when it comes to bioinspired um, optical materials. So you send out this to peer review, you, got, you had to decide peer reviewer, you need to take a decision, but overall, how was the peer review process? It was a smooth one, it was a, a really black and white decision. Tell us a little bit more on, on how the peer review process was from your editorial perspective, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so in this case, um, first of all, uh, because of it, it's interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity of this paper, um, um, we had to find a kind of different expertise for review, right? We had someone on disorder photonics, someone to look a bit more on the material aspect uh, side of things. So it did take, uh, you know, some effort to find the right people to review this paper. Uh, and we also needed someone with an optics and then photonics background, of course. Um, so overall, uh, I would say we had three reviewers on, on, on this paper. Um, and I must say that they, they, they all identified immediately the intriguing aspect of the research, right? That, that they sounded kind of excited, kind of keen on the work, um, but they did raise some point. I think Ben touched on this earlier. Um, really, you know, there was one reviewer who said, oh, this is, this is just like an amazing, super intriguing paper, um, but, you know, the optics part need to be stronger. To, to, to be nature photonics, right? Uh, and that what the, was the weakness that, that Ben mentioned that, and you know, they, he was pointed out and they had to go back and do some more simulations uh, to actually prove the role of birefringence. And, and, and in the end, it, it worked out because really that's what enabled the new understanding and I believe um, uh, made the paper stronger. Um, so yeah, I would say uh, it wasn't uh, too difficult to, to, to take a decision on this paper. There are you know, other cases where things sit more in, in gray areas. I must say that in this case, uh, you know, we perceived excitement already from the reviewers and the technical points about the optic understanding was well addressed in, in the in the in the response. So so I would say that that's briefly um the the, the, the history of, of how the, the paper went. Yeah. Happy for you that you didn't have a really hard case here, uh, but of course, uh, the multidisciplinary at another level of complexity in the decision, in the overall decision. So I want to step back from the paper now and ask you, how did you become an editor? Because of course, you, you've been a researcher, you did a postdoc, two postdoc if I'm not wrong, and then you decided then to become an editor. Can you tell a little bit more on uh, your career path and how did you end up working in nature photonics? Yeah, so um, so I must say that that um, uh, even before I started my PhD, I did a brief internship in nature and art technology. Uh, there was this occasion, this opportunity to just work in the team for for, for a week and kind of get involved with with the editorial process, um, and I really liked it. I mean, I hadn't even started my PhD. I hadn't, I didn't have a clear mind of what I wanted to be as an adult, but but I really liked the the, the that, that experience, and I think I think that that really planted a seed. Right after that, I went on to my PhD. I went on to my postdoc. And that kind of 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 of, of willingness and then for, for for editorial work was was still there, right? Then uh, during my postdoc, 
PhD and postdoc, I actually realized that um, the editorial kind of workflow is what I enjoyed more than being a researcher. As, as you probably know, everyone in this room probably knows, is, uh, is that uh, a PhD is very um, specialized and sectorialized uh, type of research, right? Very, very in a specific topic with high expertise in a specific topic. But actually what I realized that I liked, um, I still like to be exposed more to broad knowledge. Right? And this is what, what, what the editor job um, actually enables me to do. I'm you know, constantly, an editor is constantly exposed to, to, you know, to the forefront of knowledge and you know, the latest results that, that land on my desk on a daily basis. And that's really the aspect I enjoy about the editorial work because I can really um, space out my knowledge in, in, in different areas. Um, and, and also, I think that it's, it's also nice that um, although I, I'm not behind the bench anymore in a lab, I, I still feel that I, I, I can, you know, in, in a certain way, I'm part of the community um, and, and shape um, the, 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 you know, the community and, and the research. And I still get to interact with the communities, right, in occasions like this or by going to conferences, going to lab visits. So that aspect of being involved with the research, although not from the bench, it's still there. And I still enjoy that part as well about being an editor.